0: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy.
1: There's supposed to be a, a contract with the federal government to protect the borders of this nation, to keep this a country, aside from Ireland, one side from Spain. So, I, I, you know, it's a country built on immigration, but generally it's legal, organized immigration where we know who's coming in. It's there's a process to it and everyone is treated equally in that process. And we're not seeing that at the border. We know this is crisis level stuff going on at the southern border. I've seen you tweet about it as well, Guy. What is your top line concern about what's going on there?
2: Yeah. And and the thing is, Michelle, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on immigration and border issues, except sometimes it feels like I know more about it than the people running the policy. So, for example, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, who's the DHS secretary, he testified a couple weeks ago before the U.S. Senate, and they put up one of those big, you know, graphics that they have on the easel. And it was a photograph of some of these wristbands littering the ground on the other side of the river, on the American side of the river. And I believe it was Senator Ted Cruz of Texas who asked him, do you know what this is? And Mayorkas didn't know. And I remember watching that exchange and it kind of took my breath away because last year I did a reporting trip to the border, Michelle. I did my show down from two different locations, like Del Rio area and then McAllen. Uh, I was with my colleague, Katie Pavlich. We did a boat tour along the river where we got some really like hands-on experience with guys who patrol every single day. And I learned a lot. I knew a fair amount. I cover it. I interview people all the time about the issue. But I learned a lot, eyes on. And the wristbands that I'm referencing are, I think, particularly eye-opening because I never realized. I understood the stats and how many people were coming illegally. I did not realize how sophisticated the human trafficking operation was from the cartels. I mean, these wristbands are specific. Everyone has a number. They're color-coded depending on where you're coming from, how much money you've paid to the cartel, have you paid or do you owe. It is a massive operation in human trafficking and misery, quite frankly. And it is, it is tens of millions of dollars every week is what they're making on this. And then when you get on the American side of the river, they snip it off, if you've all paid, you snip it off. And I remember just being astonished, looking down at the ground and seeing, basically as far as the eye could see, the clippings of these wristbands and learning so much about it. And I was down there for like two or three days, Michelle. And that resonated with me, it stuck with me. And to see the Department of Homeland Security chief the man in charge of this operation testifying under oath that he didn't recognize what they were and didn't understand the significance, that was genuinely frightening to me because yeah. that's a level of ignorance that is just totally and completely unacceptable in my mind. Um, and to, in a roundabout way, get to your very first question, what worries me the most is this, because I, I talked to Border Patrol agents, I talked to uh, DPS guys from, from the Department of Public, Public Safety in, in Texas, And they said, when we're overwhelmed, which they are, especially recently with Title 42 coming to an end, it has been two years of a disaster. I mean, just a national disgrace for two years. It is as bad as it has ever been right now. Bill Malugin, my colleague at Fox, is at the border. He said he's never seen it this bad. It's going to get worse. Griff Jenkins, he's been covering the border at Fox for, uh, you know, probably the better part of a decade at this point, maybe even longer. He said he's never seen it this bad. And he believes based on his conversations, that it's going to get worse. When you talk to those types of reporters and then to the officials on the ground, what they tell you is there's a massive processing operation where a lot of these illegal immigrants who come across, they want to get apprehended. Their goal is to get apprehended and processed as soon as possible because their understanding, unfortunately, which is correct, is they can cross the border, flag down Border Patrol, get some paperwork done, And within days, they've got a show-up-to-court date way into the future, like years in a lot of cases. And then they are sent to the city of their choice around the country, and they're here. That is effectively open borders facilitated by the U.S. government. And when you have – so in the last week, they've been at about almost 9,000 illegal crossings a day. And they're worried that can go up at 12,000, 13,000 in the next couple of weeks. They are way past the capacity – that they can actually handle in the processing. So what they're doing is they're taking some troops are coming in. They're taking border patrol agents off the front lines, no longer patrolling, no longer doing the enforcement job. And they're basically being pencil pushers who are coming around and filling out these forms. Meanwhile, no one's minding the store. So the ability of the cartels to smuggle in people without getting apprehended, because there's another group that doesn't want to get caught, typically criminal records, Uh, more dangerous people who pay a premium to get trafficked across by the cartels, it becomes so much easier for them to get actually dangerous people into this country because we don't have people effectively manning the border because they're all off doing this processing logistical stuff. That is what worries me. And last week alone, they had nearly 19,000 known gotaways that they're aware of. Like we were just talking about hockey. A playoff hockey arena packed to the gills. That is the number of people in one week that got away that we know of last week. I just yeah. I don't see how this is remotely acceptable in a country like uh, this. It's, for any country. It's,
1: I, I agree for any country. It, it is not. And honestly, the first day that Joe Biden stepped into the Oval, he made it very clear where he stood on this by. That's right. Just undoing any process, anything that had Trump associated with it, he just kind of cut the ribbon and said, nope, no more. That's gone. We're getting rid of all this stuff.
2: How stupid, right? Uh, How stupid? I I understand people don't like Trump. Trump did some stuff that I definitely disagreed with. I'm not a huge Trump fan in some ways. But if there are policies that are working... Even if you hate the guy or you want to signal there's a new sheriff in town or we have a different worldview, just to throw in the garbage every policy yep. of his, even yep. successful ones, inviting this avalanche that we've now seen, it's just it's it's ideological and it's idiotic.
1: It's idiotic. And it also the the, the images and, and what it reflects on it, it, the way that our country looks to the to the rest of the world based on this weakness, this inability to protect our our borders and the fact that leadership. I mean, you just mentioned Mayorkas. I mean, the dereliction of duty. This, I don't think this guy has a clue what he's doing. He should be impeached. He should be gone. Uh, I think he could almost say the same thing. Well, you could say the same thing for quite a few characters in this in this administration. But it does start at the top. Biden ignores it. Kamala ignores it. Yeah, they made their little token visits, which were cleaned up for them, And but they ignore it kind of, I think, hoping that we'll just sort of not not see it. Or yeah. if they don't acknowledge it, it really isn't there. So I wonder, you know, there, there are people, Guy, who believe that this is purely intentional, that they want all of this. And I, I can understand being pro-immigration. I cannot understand being pro destructive, disorganized, um, care, just careless, reckless abandonment of your border. So it, it is the idea here what, as sinister as some people make it sound, that they simply want more voters?
2: You know, I think about this, and I don't love in my political commentary and analysis to race to the conclusion of impugning people's motives and saying like, okay, these people disagree with me, therefore they must disagree with me for the worst possible reason. And I think we do a lot of that in our politics and it's not good. And the left does that to the right all the time. I don't like to do that. Um, I have to say on this issue, when you are presiding over this utterly chaotic, deadly debacle for years, And it's very clear, like, this is not a coincidence. We've had problems with illegal immigration for decades, right? Mm -hmm. You could say that the system's broken. We need to improve. Congress needs to act. All of that is true to an extent. It all skyrocketed in January and February of 2021. That is not a coincidence. That is the opposite of a coincidence. And it's only gotten worse. And you've seen what they've done, just sort of ignoring it. Uh, DHS putting out memos, creating new categories of crimes where people can come here illegally, commit and be convicted of certain crimes and still not be eligible for deportation. Mm-hmm. You look at that and you understand, OK, there are some hardcore activists who are beating the drum on this and they're very concerned about those people. that's in their base. But the American people are horrified by what they see to the extent that they see it. His approval ratings are terrible on immigration I don't know what else to conclude other than they have decided that taking the hit politically on this and just sort of trying to mitigate the coverage as much as possible is worth it for whatever reason. Um, And one of those, I mean, they're highly political, right? They're motivated. It seems like whenever they do anything about the border, it's not because they're like, oh, wow. This is a humanitarian disaster. This is a sovereignty disaster. This is a public safety disaster. This is a national security disaster. It more feels like, uh uh-oh, this is a political disaster for us right at this moment. So let's try to get the processing sped up so we don't have images that look bad. The whole process can keep being as dysfunctional and pro-illegal immigration as possible. But as long as it's not that obvious, with the cameras inescapably covering what's happening, then that's better. It just seems like everything in this realm to them is handled through a political prism uh, to the, to the ig- ignoring of everything else and like some solemn duties of the federal government. Uh, therefore, I don't think it's completely crazy or totally baseless for us to at least question whether uh, the motive to keep this going uh, at this catastrophic clip. Mm -hmm. They know what the solutions are. They are not availing themselves of those solutions. You have to assume there's some there's some politics at play because it's politics is king with these folks.
1: It's it's um it's so distressing and depressing at the same time. And it it again it, it to me it just reflects this image that we we're in chaos here. There's just chaos. There was chaos out of Afghanistan, there's chaos at the border. There's hmm. chaos in the banking system. There's chaos in the streets. There's chaos in the subways. And and it just makes us look like this unstable, ridiculous uh, version of what the United States is supposed to be. And and it's, uh, I, so getting back to Biden here.
2: Um, can, I just, can I just say just in response please. to that? Yeah. So there are some crises that arrive, And it's no one's fault, or you can maybe blame someone a little bit. But overall, like something is just thrust upon the leadership of a country. And then it becomes, okay, how do you respond to it? 9-11. 9-11 or natural disasters and that kind of thing. Yes. These crises, a few of them that you just mentioned, are completely the result of failed policy. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some people call it incompetence. I think incompetence might be too kind. (laughs) <laughs> right. You, incompetence is the first six months and saying, oh, wow, they're in over their heads. They're not getting this. When you're in year three of the same disaster that's only getting worse and they're not really changing their policy in any significant way, then there's a dereliction that goes beyond incompetence. And these are man created, policy created disasters by this administration. And what worries me, Michelle, from a political standpoint is, Almost everything that we just talked about, the list that you went down, that was all true leading up to November of last year. And the American people just very tepidly gave a little slap on the rest of the Democrats and took their House majority away, barely. But overall, it was sort of like eh, a status quo election. I think that's something that this administration has internalized. They feel like we're doing all this stuff. Uh, We're getting away with it. And we're the the other party is worse. And so the American people are going to put up with a lot from us, um, which may sadly not be totally baseless in terms of an analysis. But it's extremely bad for the country. Uh, yeah. And what we're seeing, particularly at the border, is just it's just completely inexcusable. And I, I think you and I, when we did the show last time, we talked a bit about immigration. I've never been a hardliner. Like I've never been a hawkish anti-immigration person, I've been like, oh, let's do a dream act. And that seems fair. And it's not the kid's fault and maybe a path to legal status. And both parties should work together. I am just that stuff. I still believe at some point that might be worth it. uh, But my attitude now is absolutely not. It it all stops. I'm a hard no on everything until we get enforcement right. Exactly. Like that has to come first. Everything else is ridiculous.
1: Well, and this is what the other side and I can clearly hear Nancy Pelosi in the back of my head, which is oh, I'm I sorry. wish I could turn it off. I know. Thank you. It's saying we need comprehensive like we need comprehensive immigration reform, meaning we're not going to do anything until we do everything. Right. And I think that is <laughs> letting perfect be the enemy of the good in, in one way. And it's also it's a way of kicking the can. She knows you, you can't you can't you. I don't understand why in Congress you can't say, you know what, here's what we need to do. We need to enforce our borders. Stop. That's what we've got to start with. Now, the Trump well, administration did that. Um, but I, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not I'm not.
2: Well, there's a wave in the. Po- Go ahead. There's, there's a bill in the House that they're going to move this week. Uh, and my understanding, talking to a couple of the members over the weekend, my understanding is they're pretty optimistic. They're going to pass it out of the house this week. That would do exactly what you said. It is an enforcement first, enforcement only bill that it, gets it top. Isn't
1: just dead on arrival though? Isn't hasn't oh, Biden yeah. said he's going to veto it?
2: Yep, yep. So, the, so I mean, they
1: are forcing his hand.
2: They're going to they're going to at least say, and I believe the plan is to try to hold the vote on the exact day Title 42 ends, which is Thursday, to say yeah. okay. Here, America, there's a massive catastrophe at the border. It's so bad, even, you know, some of the lefty media outlets are down there talking about how bad it is. It's totally overwhelmed. They can't hide. It is what it is. And Republicans are saying, we have a bill to stop this. We can get to some of the comprehensive stuff later if we get uh, some control over this, but not now. We're going to do this. And the Democrats in the Senate are going to say no. And the White House has already threatened to veto. You know, Biden's already quite unpopular on this issue. Uh, I think that they are now not just playing with fire when it comes to national sovereignty and security, which they've been doing eagerly, happily, knowingly, willfully for years. Now they're playing with political fire in a way that I don't think they have before on this issue. Um, We'll see how it works out for them. Uh, The politics are a bit unpredictable. The reality is not. The reality has been predicted and now it's playing out. And they're like, oh, let's send 1,500 troops to oh, the border. That's... And and by the way, Bill Malugian, I had him on my show yesterday. Those 1,500 troops are not actually, their orders do not involve interfacing with migrants at all. They're not right. there for deterrence. They're not there for enforcement. They are warm bodies to help with the processing. Mm-hmm. That is very much the mentality of this administration. It's just, it's it's, inc- it's Yeah, amazing. and it's
1: interesting, too. My understanding from Bill Malugian's reporting is that, they are allowed to be armed, these service men and women, but that's not for uh, you know deterrence or anything. It's just self protection, which I think is ironic in so many many ways. So they need to protect themselves at the border, do they? That's very interesting. Uh, you know, it's it's like they need to protect themselves, but you don't need to protect us, the rest of us. It's it's symbolically to me, it's just it's utter nonsense. But let me get on to this. Here's the political picture that you painted from, from the midterms. I, I was right there with you. I thought it was going to be a red wave. It was not. And my belief is that abortion is this issue that the Democrats use very effectively to keep women, to keep young people on, on board. And I, I think it's going to be used again. Now, you can look at polling and you can say it's not high on people's list. It's high on some people's lists. I know these people. I interface with these people. I see these people. And they're they they are single issue voters very often. So you have got a guy, for instance, like Ron DeSantis, who just signed this bill in Florida, the six week Harpy bill, um, which further restricted abortion access in Florida. I I I'm I'm a pro choice with limitations kind of person. I do not believe in you know, abortion up to nine. months. I don't, it's, that's ridiculous, but I don't believe they should have gone to six weeks in Florida and it's going to be held against Ron DeSantis. It loudly. And I just wonder, you know, if we could self scout for a minute here on, on the Republican side, what they have to do to their messaging, because there is so much going wrong that the notion that people would continue to support the party that's in power is it's unthinkable to me. So how? how it, 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 what is the messaging
2: issue? Oh, there, there's a lot there. Um, so there's a lot of single issue voters on the abortion issue on the other side as well. Pro-lifers. Um, yes. Huge, important element of the Republican base. Uh, one of the main reasons I'm a conservative is because I am pro-life. Uh, okay. And I find myself often disgusted with the Republican Party for various reasons. And one of the reasons I kind of stick around is because they're pro-life. Um I'm we're sort of, I think, on opposite sides in the sense that you are sort of moderately Mm pro-choice and I am moderately pro-life. I'm not hardcore all the way um, and you're not hardcore all the way.
1: No, I'm not. And the
2: American people actually are somewhere in between me and you. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where public sentiment is on this issue. If you look at all the polling, the Democrats have done a good job with their friends in the media and the media is as biased on this issue as any issue. This abortion and guns, I think, are probably their two worst ones, and there's a lot to choose from. They convince pu- the public that the Republicans have a much more extreme position than they actually do, while hiding their own increasingly, like, disgustingly radical position, which is yes. taxpayer-funded abortion on demand through nine months of pregnancy. It's just, it's it's grotesque. It's, it's unbelievably gruesome. Um I think Republicans need to do a better job spotlighting the radicalism of the opposition and also explaining their positions clearly in a way that relates to people. And you can't just hide on it. Like if the Democrats are going to run a bunch of ads accusing you of all these things and it's not really accurate, but you feel like, oh, I'll just put my head in the sand over here and I'll talk about inflation and the border and crime then you're just ceding the field to them and letting them say whatever they want about you on that issue. And that will sow doubts among some voters. I think if you if you engage well, if you're a competent uh, politician, if you have a good record, um, it is certainly surmountable. So I, w- I would give you the example. I agree that to some extent, especially in certain races and certain districts and states, the abortion issue very much helped the Democrats uh, in, in 2022. Um, That being said, there were a number of conservative Republican governors and even not so conservative Republican governors who had signed into law abortion restrictions themselves. Uh, A six week law in Iowa, Kim Reynolds, a six week law in Ohio, Mike DeWine, a six week law in Georgia, Brian Kemp. Uh, All three of those governors won the biggest blowout victories of their careers in reelection campaigns, having signed those heartbeat laws. And getting hit for it in their state, and they were able to overcome it. DeSantis had signed a restriction not down to six weeks yet, and, of course, he won by 20. So you look at some of these chief executives who were actually signing abortion restrictions into law and getting pummeled for it in the press, in ads, and winning blowout victories. I don't think it is the barrier to entry of winning for the Republicans that some people think it is. But clearly, especially at the federal level— Republicans need to be a lot better at clarifying what their position is. I think recognizing where the American people are, emphasizing where they are mainstream on the issue and not letting the Democrats define them and doing the better job of defining the Democrats because the Democrats are in a position that is, even if I at this point just had an epiphany, like an anti-epiphany, I guess, and <laughs> just decide that I agreed with the Democrats on every other issue I don't believe I could vote for them right now, given only their position on like third trimester, nine month abortion. It's just to me, it's a human rights issue. They are they they push themselves so far out on a limb and that case is rarely prosecuted effectively by Republicans. Uh, I think that there is an opportunity there, but it requires smart, savvy, careful, respectful engagement and not disengagement.
1: That's interesting what you just said. I saw a pollster recently talking about this very issue and saying Republicans would do better by talking about the woman instead of the baby, talking about the woman carrying the baby and the respect for her rather than purely focusing on the baby. Oh, there's
2: two people. There's two people there. And like that's that's crucially important. And whenever I talk about it's a tough issue, right? It's 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 complex it's emotional. You're talking about life and death, bodily autonomy, women's rights, uh, human rights. There's just a lot that collides there whenever, because I'll wade into it sometimes on my show because I feel strongly about it. But I always open the conversation by acknowledging disagreement and respect that. Look, I I don't respect, frankly, the nine-month craziness, and that's only about 15% of the public. I find it unspeakable. But for just an average pro-choice person, I think we actually probably agree more than we think on the issue, and I can at least understand why they believe what they believe, and I don't think it's a completely invalid series of issues and and questions that they raise. And I think just it's important to open a conversation by acknowledging that rather than just starting from the point of on one side, you people hate women or you people want babies dead. What does that achieve? To me, nothing
1: right and that, and that's what the argument generally devolves into and, and I, I am curious guy and i because i have a lot of good friends who are pro life and i respect you tremendously and i respect all of them and i i like i'm not a hardline pro choicer i'm not i i believe in a window where it is appropriate and not beyond that yeah that's most would, people right right i think that is most people so Tell me about how you developed your your view on this, because I, I'm really curious as to your thoughts on it. I love talking to people who hold a different view or, you know, I, like I said, I think we overlap. But I, I am curious to hear how you arrived at this viewpoint.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an issue where I sort of started at the sort of the end where it's like, OK, a baby has been born. They just have arrived on the scene one second ago. If you were to murder that kid with a gun, if you're just like, oh, you're out of the womb, boom, that is clear cut murder. You go to jail. Yes. So then I start to think, OK. What is the difference between that and five minutes earlier? And then you start working backwards and you start thinking right. about, OK, well. Does science teach us when a child is viable? Because I think the whole issue of like, is it one life or two lives, right? That one life or two lives is a fundamental question, because if you don't believe that the baby or the fetus is a human life, and then it's only about the bodily autonomy and liberties of the woman. My argument is at some point, whether you think it's conception, whether you think it's some, you know, uh, you know, viability moment. Um, which is a sliding target. Uh, And as as science gets better, actually, it moves closer and closer to conception. Or if you think it's, you know, let's say the third trimester or birth, you draw a line somewhere where a human being becomes a human being uh, that, that deserves some legal rights themselves. Um, And to me, I just sort of thought I would rather err on the side of life because I don't have some special insight into when life begins to me conception is a very bright line uh that's my personal belief i also recognize that saying no abortion whatsoever starting at conception is not where our society is right now um so you know my my emphasis when i talk about this issue is typically weeks into pregnancy where you start to say in my goodness whether you think it's a heartbeat or you can see you know the little feet of the child on an ultrasound um, where you get to a point where, let's say, you know, 15 or 20 weeks where a child can experience pain, can feel pain. I just feel like there's a line. And having the discussion around where that line is truly is the crux of the argument. Um, and, and the other thing, this last point, is I find it odd and sort of sometimes contradictory where, let's say there's a couple Married couple, they really want kids. Uh, they've been trying to have kids. They finally get pregnant. Uh, they get that six-week ultrasound. There's the heartbeat. They're thrilled. They tell family and friends, and they're getting hugs and kisses and tears of joy and congratulations. And then a, a child at the exact same moment of gestation could come as a an unwelcome surprise to a different woman in a different circumstance and I just don't know if the value of a human life and the existence of a human life ought to depend on the wantedness of that life. Mm. Um, and that's another thing that I sort of grapple with morally and ethically on the question and, and why I, I lean in the pro-life direction.
1: That was a really compelling parallel you just drew. Um, and listen, and I've made no secret of this. You're talking to a person who had a horrible time getting pregnant mm. and keeping staying pregnant and lost a bunch of babies. And it, it was hell. Mm. Um And so thank God I finally had my son and then I had the opportunity to adopt my little girl. Uh, and I am grateful to her mother in Bogota, Colombia for going through with that pregnancy. And I have this amazing kid. So it's a, it's a really interesting issue for me to grapple with. And I'm very, I'm actually quite open-minded on it. Um, I, I tend to, I think, be with kind of in the middle, like we discussed, Yep. but you just made a really, a really compelling argument at this, you know, I, I think we could go on and on on this topic. What I, what I can't stand is the way that people make it a, a, a topic about fear. They're, they're telling women, um, you don't have control. You're going to be forced to carry this baby, you know. And part of me wants to just get back to, you know, there are ways to prevent getting pregnant.
2: <laughs> yeah, which I'm very in favor of, right? And I yeah. think I think sex ed and contraception, all that stuff. Like, I know some elements of conservatives are sort of skeptical of those two for various reasons. I'm like, hey, if we want to avoid this thing. Yeah, let's let's throw open the options to make sure that that doesn't become necessary. Right. I think that's that's a, a, I try to be I try to be thoughtful and pragmatic about this because I feel so strongly about it. But I also others do, too. And we talk past each other so much on yeah. it. Yes. And to me, it doesn't necessarily achieve that much. I, I was not expecting uh a deep discussion on abortion today, Michelle.
1: I, I hope I didn't uh, didn't make you uncomfortable.
0: Okay. No, no, I'm, I'm glad we. I'm
2: glad
1: we. I'm did glad it. we did it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.